Deuteronomy chapter number 11. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep His charge, and His statutes, and His judgments, and His commandments always. Know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known, and which have not seen, the chastisement of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His stretched out arm, and His miracles, and His acts, which He did in the midst of Egypt, unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. What He did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses, and to their chariots, how He made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day. And what He did unto you in the wilderness until ye came into this place. What He did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben. Uh, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their households and uh, their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which He did. Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land whither ye go to possess it, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers to give it unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from when she came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs, But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven. A land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us. We thank you for your precious, precious word. We pray that you'd uh, bless now the preaching of this word, that you'd speak to hearts for your glory. We do ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. As you find your seat, I want you to notice three of the verses that we've read and a common theme that we will find in all three. Verse number one begins this way. It says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. Verse number eight says, Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land whither ye go. To possess it. And you'll find it again down in verse number 18 when it says, Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, 
The body of Scripture we've read tonight, I'll go ahead and tell you, is part of a larger discourse that Moses is giving uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. You could go on and read to the end of the chapter, and you'd find a lot of good things, uh, a lot of very applicable and relevant things to my life and yours. But I want us to take a few moments and consider the usage of the word, therefore, in the three verses that we've read tonight. You know, therefore, establishes a consequence to something. In other words, you're saying this, that all of these facts are true. Therefore, as a result of, or in light of, this should be the response. And in all three of these verses where the word therefore is found, the consequence that is before us is basically this, that we ought to love the Lord and that we ought to obey the Bible. Now, I know this is going to seem a little bit simplistic tonight, and I hope you don't feel like it's a little bit too elementary for your taste. But I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Therefore, we follow the Bible. Now, what makes you and I Bible believers, and what reason is there that a Christian should follow the Word of God? Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, this almost seems deceptively simple, but it is just that deceptively simple. A lot of people would say, well, preacher, why don't you preach that to the new converts? I mean, listen, we've been saved for many years. But I find this to be true, that no matter how old a man gets, he always battles his flesh. And the reality is this, that though we may be uh, today not where we were 20 years ago, chances are that we're also not today where we want to be. We would probably admit that maybe there's some areas of our life in which we're not following the Word of God in quite the way that we should. And I want to encourage you tonight and give you a few reasons. And if nothing else, let me exhort you to a better walk with the Lord through the Word of God. And I want you to notice about four things this evening before we close. Look at verse number 1. As this discourse is opened, as this train of thought is established, the first thing that Moses speaks of is what we are summoned to. In other words, you might say it this way, what is it that we're talking about? What kind of behavior is it that God requires out of you and me? We have a, 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 a wonderful way of complicating the truth of the Word of God sometimes, I'll be honest with you. It's amazing. You can take the most simple thing in the world and hand it to a, uh, uh, to a, a human being, and before you know it, they'll have it tied in knots before they hand it back to you. And we do that very thing when it comes to following the Lord. Now, I know there are a lot of truths in this Bible. Somebody say amen to that. But I believe we could boil it down and sum it up in what Moses says in verse number 1. He says, Therefore, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep His charge and His statutes and His judgments and His commandments always. That's what he's telling them they're called to. That's how he sums up the life that God expects them to live. And I notice six areas of our life that we need to yield to the Lord. Notice first off that he speaks about the passion of our life. He says you ought to love the Lord. Now, I know, again, that seems simplistic. And yet, so oftentimes, we like the children of Israel. I mean, it's funny, because you read through the history of the children of Israel, and they must have all been teenagers, amen? Because they, it's like they were perpetually in this thing of saying, Lord, we know, you know. And uh, the fact is, we give teenagers a hard time about that. It's funny, they get to an age, I don't know who tells them, but between, between like 15 and 17, somebody comes in and teaches them everything in the world there is to know, right? I know, I know, I know. But let me tell you something. Let let me just uh, encourage our teenagers in saying this. Adults tell you that you're the only one that way, but the fact is we're all that way a little bit. 
We're all that way a little bit. You know how we do it is the Holy Ghost starts to deal with us and we say, hey, I already know. I'm all right. I'm okay. I already know what you're saying. The preacher gets up and preaches the Word of God and we say, oh, I've heard this before. Turn that hearing aid off. We say, I'm all right. I'm okay. Uh, you know, the fact is, though it may be a simple truth that we are to love the Lord, too often times, just like the children of Israel, our uh, affection is drawn away by the other gods of this world. Let me tell you something. You can do all the rest of it. You can keep His statutes and His charges and His judgments and His commandments always. You can do that. But if you don't love the Lord, you've missed the main thing. You've missed the main thing. Am I right? I would say this, that if you don't truly love the Lord, you're not going to truly keep His commandments. Because the very first commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. I mean, listen, you, you remember a scribe came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, on these two, hang all the law and the prophets, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, you may have all the church religion that a person could stomach, but if it doesn't start with loving the Lord, you've missed it. He ought to be the passion of our life. There should be nothing more important than the Lord in our lives. Now, I want you to stop take inventory of your life and ask yourself honestly. You don't have to be honest with me. I can't see your heart. I can't read your mind. But it'd pay you to be honest with the Lord because He already knows your heart and your mind. Is there anything more important to you than the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anything that has crept its way onto His throne and has pushed Him out? What about when it comes time to serve the Lord? Do we not have time? What about, hey, I ain't fussing. It's Sunday night. Amen. If I'm going to fuss about the Sunday night crowd, I'm going to wait and do it on Wednesday night. Somebody say amen to that. We're here to fuss about the Sunday morning crowd. Amen. Get things straight. I'm not here to fuss at you tonight. I'm just merely saying in the grand scheme of things, what about when it's time to give the Lord that which He's blessed you with? Do we have enough for Him? Or are we just giving Him our leftovers? What about our energy? Oh, my, our energy. Let me tell you something. As you get older, you learn more and more what a limited resource energy is. Amen? Young people think they just got all kinds of energy. But the fact is, here's what we do. Energy, there's a sliding scale to how we measure energy. Here's the question. I'm not asking you if you're giving some time to the Lord. I'm asking you if you're giving your best time to the Lord. I'm not asking you if you're giving some energy to the Lord. I'm asking you if you're giving the best of your energy to the Lord. The fact is, whether we love the Lord or not, it can be measured by how we keep His commandments. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But I think more than anything that our love for the Lord can be measured by our dedication to Him. If we're not dedicated to Him, then let's not, let's not play church. Let's not pretend. Let's not put on that mask that comes in the foyer of every single Baptist church. Amen? Let's just go ahead and admit maybe there's some things that are wrong in our life. And it may not be anything in the way of breaking a commandment, as it were, but it may just simply be that we've allowed ourselves to grow cold to the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks about the passions of their life. Notice the next phrase. He says, love the Lord. And then he says, and keep His charge. He speaks about the purpose of your life. When we speak about keeping a charge, and by the way, there's a lot of uh, various ideas that float around that phrase, but the main one is this, doing your duty. Amen? If you uh, committed a charge unto a person, you can almost imagine a soldier that has been given a post, and he is expected beyond anything else to stand at that post and remain in his place. That is the purpose of his life for that period of time. I often think about, and I'm sure you've seen them too, at national uh, monuments, and I'm pretty sure Arlington is the, the biggest one, but you'll see those soldiers standing out there, and man, it'll just be pouring rain, it'll be coming in sideways, and they're just standing out there. 
keeping their charge. The wind might be blowing so hard it's getting ready to blow over headstones. But they'll just strap themselves down and keep their charge. That's their purpose at that moment. Of course, we could talk about the uh, soldiers at the front of Buckingham Palace. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what goes in front of them. Here's the reality. They know what their job is. Their job is to stand at that place in that position and to keep a charge. That is their purpose for that moment in time. I wonder what our purpose in life is. I wonder if we've made God's purpose our purpose. I wonder if we care whether folks get saved. I'm not talking about with the words we use, because, of course, we're all, everybody in here is going to say, oh, yeah, we want to see people saved. But if someone was to look at the evidence of our life, would they see that? If someone was to look at the pattern of our witnessing, could they tell that? If somebody was to look at the pattern of our giving, could they see that? Or have we been derelict in our duty to the Lord Jesus Christ? Your grand purpose, if you're a saved child of God, beyond anything else, you may have a lot of responsibilities, but your main responsibility is to live for the glory of God and to be a light for Him. I remember hearing a fellow uh, tell one time, and, I, and I've tried to model my life after this, it's supposed to build discipline, but I like the discipline to start it, so I can't do anything about that. But he said that you ought to make a responsibility tree sort of in your life. In other words, and I've shared this with you before, but you might go through and you might say, okay, Toby Weber, before he's anything, he, he is a, 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 a husband to his wife. And then next, he is a father to his children. And then next, he is a, a pastor to his church. And then next, he is a preacher to all those that are ignorant enough to listen. And he is, a, you know, and you go down through the line and you'd say, every day I'm going to commit myself to doing something in this category to better myself. I think it's a pretty good idea. I wonder what would be at the top of our list. You know what it should be? I'm a child of God. And my responsibility is to do something for the cause of Christ and for the glory of God today. We ought to keep our charge. He talks about the purpose that we have in life. Notice the next phrase. He says, uh, and his statutes. He speaks about the principles of our life. That's what statutes are. Uh, if you uh, read anything in the way of local or city government and charters and things like that, you'll find that term statutes over and over and over again. And it reflects some piece of legislative, authoritative commandment or guideline. Can I tell you something? I know that Christianity is much more than just keeping commandments. Right? It's much more than that. But this is also a Bible full of commandments. People say, oh, preacher, I, listen, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to follow those, uh, follow those silly old rules. I love the Lord, and that's all that matters. Let me tell you something. Loving the Lord may be the main thing that matters, but you know what he said in John 15? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The fact is, no man has ever loved the Lord and not kept his commandments, Brother Charlie. No man has ever truly loved the Lord and not kept the commandment. Now, I'm not talking about being perfect. You know that. I know that. But what I'm talking about is structuring our life according to the truth of the Word of God, saying, Lord, these are the principles that I ought to live by. I wonder what does set the standard in our life. These are Listen, these are hard questions. I hope you'll really, really listen. I hope you'll really, really consider. Now, if you just came to church because that's what you do and it's your job and you've already checked out, I'm sorry. But if you're listening to me right now, I want you to stop and ask yourself this. We talked about this a little bit this morning. Everybody has standards, right? You go to walk into the Burger King, start naked. Somebody's going to have something to say about it, right? Everybody has standards. And that's not just true as far as appearance is concerned, but that's true as, as far as, as anything. Listen, you go down to a restaurant and you order something and they bring you something with a hair on it, you're probably going to have something to say about it, right? Unless you ordered something with a hair on it. I don't know what kind of restaurant you go to, but you have a standard. You say, I will not accept that. It's not appropriate. 
you probably, when you were raising your kids, there were, I mean, there were probably certain things you didn't want them doing. I mean, you might have been all right with them hanging out at a friend's house, but you didn't want them going down to the cotton-eyed Joe's. Amen? You had a standard. So we all have standards. Now, let me ask you this. What are our standards modeled after? What dictates the level and the degree and the extent and placement of those standards? Is it what's socially acceptable? Is it what's culturally acceptable within the church? I'll tell you what it should be. It ought to be what's scripturally correct. That's what ought to set our standards. Let me tell you something. It don't matter what the world thinks. I've got news for you. If the Lord tarries His coming, then I, I, well, I, I probably ought to say this. As long as the Lord tarries His coming, this world's just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. This world is going to continue to look less and less than like this King James Bible. Amen? So we've got to make up our mind where we stand on some things. Because the world's not going to help you out by all of a sudden getting real biblical just so you're not uncomfortable. You might as well go ahead and get comfortable with the fact that you're going to be walking out of lockstep with this world and that your standard's going to have to be molded and shaped and provided by the truth of the Word of God. He speaks about uh, the principles of our life. Notice the perspective of our life that he speaks about. He says, and his judgments. Now, I understand that the word judgments in the Bible can oftentimes speak about the truth of the Word of God. I'm aware of that. I understand that the judgments of God could, in a sense, be referencing the uh, day when all are going to stand accountable. We know that there are multiple judgments. Amen? We're dispensationalists. We believe that, right? We know there's going to be two resurrections, two judgments. We understand that. But here's what I think he's talking about. We know what a judgment is. A judgment is an opinion. Correct? That's my judgment on the matter. All right? Uh, if I look at you and if I say, hey, your outfit is ugly, all right, that's an opinion of mine. That's my judgment that I have passed on that matter. If you look at me and say, preacher, your outfit's ugly, that's your opinion, that's your judgment. You know, I think that what he's speaking of, and I almost use this word, the palette of our life. Our opinion ought to be God's opinion. Or maybe I should say it this way, God's opinion ought to be our opinion. If God's disgusted by something, we ought to be disgusted by it. To suggest that it is that it is compassion to be anything less than what God is about something. In other words, if God's outraged about something, then to be anything less for us than outraged about whatever it is God's outraged about is to suggest that God is irrational in His response to a matter. If there's something that God calls an abomination, we ought to call it an abomination. If there's something that God calls sin, hey, we ought to call it sin and not apologize for it. By the same token, see, that's easy. That's the easy part, right? Because we're good at that. We're good at saying, oh, that's sin. All them people are wicked. All that. But if God says something is right, then we ought to stand up and say it's right. And that's true. Listen, not just for our lives. That's true for our homes. If it's right, then it's right. And if it's right, then it's right for my home, and it's right for your home. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe God leads each and every one of us individually, don't you? I understand that. I understand that God leads a person. I believe God leads a home through the husband. And I believe He has a direction for a home, and I understand all that. But I also understand this. We've taken a lot of things and, and tried to, we've tried to say, well, those are, those are not commandments, those are convictions. And I understand what people mean when they say that, but here's the problem. A lot of times the things they're talking about aren't convictions, they're commandments. 
And we've said, well, you know, that's just relative, and that might be fine for you, but that's not fine for my family, and so on and so forth. There's some things, i got news for you, friend, that are just right. And we ought to have the same judgment about them that God has about them. And if it's right for them, it's right for us. Amen? I, oh, that's all right. We're okay. I'm just going to pretend that all of a sudden your metabolism kicked into high gear or something, all right, or low gear, I don't know, and pretend that that didn't bother you, what I just said, because I hope it doesn't bother you to say that what's right is right, and it's right for me, and it's right for you. We find that he speaks about the perspective of life. Look at the next phrase. He says in his command, this might be all I get preached tonight, I don't know. He speaks about the priorities of our life. He says, and his commandments. In other words, no matter what the world thinks about a matter, our priority ought to be what God thinks about a matter. His commandments ought to be the main thing. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this because I've already preached all around it and all over top of it. But let me just say this. We better get used to the fact that we're going to have to choose between the way of the will and word of God and the way of the world. You're going to have to choose. You cannot walk both of them at the same time. Are you hearing me? You're going to have to choose whether you're going to follow God or whether you're going to follow the world. And if we're going to do what God would have us to do, if we're going to love the Lord, if we're going to be Bible followers, and we ought to be Bible followers, then that means choosing the Lord over choosing the world. And then finally, notice this last little word. Not finally, don't get excited, but finally on this point. (laughs) Getting everybody excited. Somebody said, glory! No, it's okay. You can run a lap if you want, but you've got to make it back to your seat. You can't go out the doors. We see the pattern of our life. He says, always. Always. God's called us to be consistent in the way we behave and interact with the Lord. Consistency's hard. I'll admit that to you. It's difficult to stay consistent. But nonetheless, we are called to consistency. You know what God says about consistency? He said, I'd rather have you hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. God can deal more with us if we'll own up to our inconsistency than He can if we're blind to our inconsistency. God expects you and I to be faithful and to be consistent. God didn't call nobody here to take over the world, but He called us to be consistent. There's no one in this room that God called to be the greatest parent or the greatest son or the greatest daughter or the greatest church member, but He called all of us to be consistent. He says, do these things always. There might be some things, if somebody called you to be the greatest preacher or the greatest uh, church member or the greatest Sunday school teacher or the greatest soul winner, uh, if somebody said, that's your responsibility, you might could say, I'm not up to the task. But one thing that everybody in this room is equipped for is being consistent. We have to commit ourselves to say this thing is, you know, we, we live in a day of diet Christianity, right? You've heard people say the past few years, I, it doesn't make sense to me. All growing up, it was all about you need to diet. And then all of a sudden, uh, people said, no, dieting is not the way to go, you know? You, you've heard this, right? And so that's just where I'm standing, right there, and I'm not moving. They're not going to do that to me. If dieting's wrong, I'm just not going to diet, and I'll just stand right where I am, amen? But uh, we live in a day of dieting Christianity. Oh, man, we're over in the ditch here. Let's try to get spiritual all of a sudden. And let's spend about 40 days being spiritual. And then all of a sudden we can lay down on the job again. And we want, let me tell you something, it wrecks our families. Our young people grow up and see that. I heard a preacher preaching out of Genesis 33 not too long ago. 
And the thrust of his message, he was talking about, and I don't know if you ever noticed it, but if you were to look there in Genesis chapter 33, the Bible is very careful to say that Joseph was present there. Joseph would have been a young boy at that time, probably about six years old, and he was present at the meeting of Jacob and Esau. And he had his entire life. Could you imagine? I mean, here's Jake, or Joseph in the background of Jacob's life, and he's seeing all the inconsistency of his father. Twelve children, twelve boys, thirteen children that are born to Jacob, and most of them wind up wrecked. I believe, and listen, it's not because Jacob made mistakes, because Abraham made mistakes. Isaac made mistakes. Everybody, listen, it's not, David made mistakes, and he raised the wisest boy ever to walk the face of the earth other than the Lord Jesus, right? But it was Jacob's inconsistency that cursed his family. One second, he'd be the most spiritual man you've met. Listen, he's seeing ladders climbing down from heaven. He's pillowing his head upon the altar. One minute, man, he's so close to God that he can just reach out and touch him. And the next minute, he's doing everything he can to connive and steal and lie, to get ahead in life. And his children saw that. And it wrecked their walk with God. They saw that they could live in the same way. Little feet are following us. Little eyes are watching us. And by the way, you say, preacher, my kids are up and grown. Well, they may be, but you may have some grandkids. Preacher, I ain't got no grandkids. You might have some nieces and nephews. Preacher, I ain't even got no nieces and nephews. And you probably got some folks live next to you. We've all got people watching us. So the question is, are they seeing a life of consistency? We see what we are summoned to. I want to hurry through this. Notice next, what we have seen is put to the forefront. Verse number 2 and 3. The Bible says, And know ye this day... For I speak not with your children which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, His greatness and His mighty hand, and His stretched out arm, and His miracles and His acts, which He did in the midst of Egypt, unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. Now, I won't pause there. And it goes on. We read it earlier, and we'll read it again here in a moment. But let me say this, that more light always brings more responsibility. Moses says, listen, I'm not talking to folks that haven't seen God's hand work. I'm not talking to your children that weren't there on the day when the Passover blood brought you out of the bondage of Egypt. I'm not talking to folks that didn't stand by the Red Sea. But I'm talking to those of you that have been there, those of you that have seen something. And the fact that you've seen something means that you're owed something to the Lord. I want you to notice that uh, in our lives, if, there, if for no other reason we're called to all of these things, we're summoned to this life of walking biblically. The first reason that we ought to be willing to make the Word of God the rule of our life is because of the things that we've seen God do in our life. This book is an inspired book. It's preserved. The inspiration is preserved inherently and perfectly and spotlessly. This book that we hold in our hands is a precious book. We've been entrusted with a great thing. And I've got news for you. You and I that have been saved by God's grace, we owe a debt to this book and to the Lord. The God, not just the Word of the Lord, but the Lord 
of the Word. And he mentions a few things that if you've been saved, I believe you've probably seen. Notice that we've seen his salvation in verses 2 through 3. Everything he describes there, and I want to explain it to you. In verse 2, he says, "...have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God." You know what he's speaking about? He's speaking about the 450 years they had spent in bondage with Charlie. That was the chastisement of the Lord upon them as a people. And you can go back and read in the book of Exodus and see where that is referenced specifically that that time in Egypt they had been chastened by the Lord. That's speaking about the way the Lord dealt with us to bring him us unto himself. His greatness, his mighty hand and his stretched out arm and his miracles and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt. It's talking about the ten plagues that took place. How that God showed Himself mighty and showed Himself real. And at the same time, I don't know if you realize this, but do you know uh, that on every single person, or I mean, I'm sorry, with every single plague except for the uh, the death angel, which and they were exempt in a sense because they were given the Passover blood, but with every other plague, the children of Israel were exempt from the consequences of it. They were down in the land of Goshen, which was a little bit further south. And, I mean, literally, when darkness was upon the land, it was daylight in Goshen. When flies were upon the land, there wasn't nary a fly in Goshen. When there were bulls on everybody in Egypt, everybody was fine down in Goshen. They had seen how God could deal in a mighty way. And that was His stretched out arm. God was showing mercy to them and showing that He had the desire to bring them out of Egypt's bondage. And they had seen this. Do you remember what it was like when the Lord was dealing with you and treating you in grace to draw you unto Himself when you were lost and undone? He speaks about the way that the Lord brought him out through the Passover blood. It says in verse uh, number 3, "...in His miracles and His acts which He did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and unto all of His land." Notice verse number 4. We've seen not only His salvation, we've seen His strength. It says, "...and what He did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses and to their chariots, how He made the water of the Red Sea to overflow, and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day." They had seen God's strong, mighty hand destroy the entire army of the greatest world power. And He did it in a moment, and He did it without any effort. I don't know about you, but in my life I have seen God's strong hand. I was talking to somebody just recently, and I was was telling them about something where God had answered a prayer. And I said, you know, I've seen God do great things in difficult situations. I've seen God do impossible things. I have seen God do things that are beyond the realm of human capability. Now, I mean that. I don't mean to spook you by saying that, but that's the truth. I have seen God do... I'm talking about miracles. I believe in miracles. And I have seen... I'm talking about people that had a sickness in their body. And I'm not talking about me going up and slapping them or some kind of nonsense. I'm not talking about me doing something because, by the way, I have no healing power. Amen? But I'm talking about we prayed and asked God to deliver, and God delivered. And I can tell you story after story of how God has done that. I'm talking about leaving doctors baffled. I'm talking about leaving scientists baffled. I've seen God do things that no human could do. I've seen His strength. Notice not only His strength, I've seen His sufficiency. Look at verse number 5. And what He did unto you in the wilderness until ye came into this place. You, you've read it, I'm sure, uh, a hundred times, how that God uh, gave him forth manna from heaven. When they complained about the manna, He sent quail to them. How He brought forth water out of the rock. How He made their clothes to not waste and, and grow old upon them. And their shoes didn't wear thin and didn't wear through on their feet. How that God had literally led them by His hand all through Egypt. Can I say this? I've seen God do that in my life. 
Now, not in the exact same way, but I've seen God drop provision in my lap in no less a miraculous way than God dropped quail from the sky for the children of Israel. I've seen God, listen, God has never given me a pair of shoes that don't wear out, but I've seen God give me the money to get a new pair when I needed them. I've seen His sufficiency in my life over and over and over again. Notice not only His sufficiency, look at verses 6 and 7. I've seen His standard in my life. It says in verse number 6, And what He did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. I've seen that God is a holy God. I've seen God. Now, I want to be careful. Well... What I'm about to tell you is true. I don't guess I have to be careful in the way I say it. But I don't want to be crass. I don't want to be insensitive in what I'm about to say. But I have seen the heavy hand of God fall upon a person's life because they were walking out of the will of God. I have buried people that I believe with my heart of hearts were in that grave because they chose to run from God. You say, preacher, God won't put somebody in a grave for running from Him. He put someone in a fish's belly. And I would suggest, and a lot of people would probably agree with me about this, that he did put him in a grave, Brother Charlie, when he put him in that fish's belly. He said, in the belly of hell cried I unto thee. I'm saying this, that, and I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to bully you, but I am saying this. Our God is a holy God, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we better realize that when we start to run from God, there are consequences to it. Uh, Now, listen, if you're here tonight, you may have never seen any of these things, but there's probably at least one or two people in here that they've seen the very things I'm talking about. That, for no other reason, because of what we've seen, ought to drive us to follow the truth, the Word of God. Notice down in verse number 8, I think not only because of what we've seen, but because of what we're striving for. It says in verse number 8, Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may uh, be strong and go in and possess the land, whither ye go to possess it. What, why should we follow the Bible? What will the consequences be? Or what are we hoping for? Let me say, number one, we're hoping to be strong through a proper relationship with the Word of God. Now, they had land in front of them. They had a task in front of them. They had armies in front of them. They had fortresses in front of them. There was a great task at hand. And if they were going to be ready for it, they had to be strong. And if they were going to be strong, it was only going to be through applying the truth of the Word of God to their life. We live in a day of anemic Christianity. Oh, it's bad. I'm telling you, neighbor. We live in a day where most folks, I mean, they wouldn't know the difference between the uh, Scripture of the Word of God and the lyrics off of the back of some rock CD. We live in a day where the vast majority of people, if you had to ask them, give me one verse that God's used to bless and strengthen you in the past year, most of them couldn't do it. It's no wonder we're so anemic. It's no wonder, listen, it's no wonder we can't stand to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Most of the time, uh, if there's a heretic comes and wants to question what we believe, we just have to shut up and be quiet because we don't have a clue what we believe. We need strength from the Word of God. And that comes from a proper and appropriate relationship with the Word of God. You know, the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter number 4, whenever the devil came and tempted him, you understand this is the Son of God. I mean, listen, Lucifer may have been a high angel, but the Son was the one that created all things. The power of Jesus Christ was of such infinite value that the power that Satan had was absolutely nothing compared to it. He spoke him into existence. He could have spoken him out of existence. 
But you know what God did graciously for you and I? Instead, He dismissed the power of His divinity and chose rather to approach the temptation of Satan with the very same tool that you and I have, with the very same weapon that you and I have. And on three separate occasions, he quoted the truth of the Word of God to combat the temptation of Satan. If that's not anything, we know it's at least instructive, don't we? That if we're going to stand against the wiles of the devil, if we're going to stand against Satan's temptations, we have to be equipped with the truth of the Word of God to do so. You'd be amazed what the Holy Ghost will bring to your mind in a moment of temptation. At that very moment, that crisis point where you're just about to plunge off into disobedience, oftentimes the Holy Ghost will take a Scripture and paint it across the front of your mind and the back of your eyeballs and, and remind you of something that God has said and spoken and done in your hearts. But it's difficult for Him to do it if we don't ever read our Bible. We are laying up ammunition for moments of temptation when we study the Word of God. I I promise you, most folks in this room, at that moment of temptation, they're not going to stop and say, hold on a minute, Satan, let me go grab my Bible and and read for a little bit. You've heard this said before, talking about young people. They're going to formulate standards. They can't do it in the moment of temptation, right? Uh, If you're you're going to stand, if you're going to keep your purity, you don't need to wait to the moment of temptation to decide you're going to keep it. You need to decide now. Amen? Amen? Amen! And the same thing is true of us as Christians. We don't need to wait to the moment of temptation to formulate a strong relationship and bond with the Word of God. We need to do it now. We're laying up ammunition for that moment. We need to read the Word of God to be strong. Look at verse number 8. The end of it, he says this, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land, whether ye go to possess it. Now, of course, you know, if you've studied typology in the Bible, you know that Canaan was a picture. I know people say Canaan's a picture of heaven. I'm sorry, it's not. Uh, there, there ain't no giants in heaven, at least I hope so. Amen? Um, Canaan is not a picture of, of heaven. Canaan is a picture of the victorious Christian life, the life that God has for you and for I. And when we understand that, is it not very instructive what Moses says here? He says, you need to have a, a, a follow the Word of God and love the Word of God and keep the statutes so that when you go into this land to possess it, you can possess it. I might say it this way, that we need it to be spiritual in our lives. We're never, whatever we feed ourselves on, that's what we gain an appetite for. Right? That's what we gain an appetite for. It's interesting. We talked about Esau a little bit this morning. You know that Esau's name means red, right? Red. Uh, the Bible tells us that when he was born, he's covered in red hair, and they named him Esau, which means red. Isn't it interesting that when the day of temptation came, what was it that Jacob had sitting in front of him? It was a bowl of red pottage. The thing that appealed to Esau was what Esau was, and what Esau was was the thing that appealed unto him. You might say it this way, you are what you eat. If you don't feed yourself on the truth of the Word of God, you're not going to have an appetite for the truth of the Word of God. Uh, Listen, if you feed the new man, the new man's going to want to eat. If you feed the old man, the old man's going to want to eat. You have a decision to make. And if you want to be spiritual, if you want to go into the land that God has for you, and listen, not just glimpse it, but possess it, then you're going to have to follow the truth of the Word of God. We need it to be spiritual. Notice what it says in verse number 9. It says, "...and that ye may prolong your days in the land." 
which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed a land that flows with milk and honey. Now, again, if the land pictures a victorious Christian life, you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean, living, not, not living above sin, but choosing to not live with sin. Amen? I'm talking about not living in perfection, but living in consecration. I'm talking about not saying that we never do anything wrong, but when we do something wrong, we confess and forsake it and get it right. If we're going to stay in that way, it's going to take a truth. Uh, it's going to take the truth of the Word of God. I would say not only to be strong and to be spiritual, but to be steady. We need the truth of the Word of God. You would be amazed how this Bible gives balance to your life. If you'll get up and every day set aside some time, and don't have to be in the, listen. If your time's in the morning, God bless you. Some folks like to read the Bible in the middle of the day. Some folks like to read the Bible at night. I don't really care as long as you read the Bible. We get to glory. It's all going to be one unending day anyway. Amen? I, people have different opinions about it. You do, I believe, whatever is, uh, is most appropriate with your schedule. But set aside a time every day. And you'd be amazed how in the craziness of this world, things will get pushed away. And all of a sudden, a path and a balance and a steadiness will be given to your day as you spend a little bit of time reading the Word of God each day. There's days I get up and, and things is just crazy. Amen? I mean, we got a three-year-old in the house. There's, there's days I wake up and things is just crazy. There's days that I wake up and my phone is just blowing up. There's days that I wake up and, and, and there's eight people in the hospital and want nobody in there the night before. How do you survive those days like that? How do you, how do you find some kind of strength and steadiness? It comes from the Word of God. When you take a few moments to sit down with the Ancient of Days, who's not in a hurry about anything, and just let Him speak to your heart, it'll give you a steadiness. Now finally, and I'll be done tonight, I want you to notice these last few verses, and I want us to consider what's at stake. We've talked about what we're striving for. We want to be strong. We want to be spiritual. We want to be steady. But what is at risk if we do not follow the truth of the Word of God? Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence she came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. Let me say, number one, that what's at stake is the real estate that God has for us. Now, when I say real estate, I don't mean physical property, but I mean this. You know what God was saying to him? He was saying, you want to go in and possess this land? Then you better fall in love with your Bible. That's what he was saying. Now, we understand they didn't have a completed Bible at that time. They had the, the law that had been given uh, from Sinai. But he's saying this, if you want to possess this land, then you've got to obey the law. You say, what does that mean for us today? It means this, that if we want to claim the ground God has already purchased for us, right? It is the will of God that we live in victory. It is the will of God that we live in victory. It's not the will of God that we live in discouragement. It's not the will of God that we live in defeat. It's not the will of God that we live in a constant backsliding, backslidden state. That's not God's will. It's not God's will for our church, not God's will for your life, not God's will for your home. It is the will of God that we be advancing in our walk with Christ. That's God's will. And if we want God's will, we've got to approach it God's way. 
And that's through the truth of the Word of God. It's no wonder so many Christians are just down all the time, beat up all the time, under, oppressed by the weight of this world all the time. It's because all they do is fill all their time with the the nonsense of this world instead of tethering themselves, anchoring themselves to a rock that never moves, finding in it the strength that we need. I think the real estate is at stake. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says, It shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord thy God, or to love the Lord your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in His due season. The first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. I'd say that the rain is at stake. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, in the Word of God, the rain was always associated with the blessing of God. We think of rain as a negative thing. That's because we don't raise crops. Somebody say amen to that. I remember, uh, you know, I, I, this past year was the first time I'd ever raised a garden. And I used to hate it, man. All of my life, I have heard old people, every time it rains, say, boy, my garden needed it. And that has always bugged me to no end, because I always hated rainy weather. And I knew this. I grew up mowing the yard. Somebody say amen to that. When, when the last of us got moved out, it liked to kill Dad. He had to start mowing the yard again. He hadn't, he hadn't mowed the yard in 20 years. He, didn't, he said, man, this is for the birds. But it's okay. About that time, grandkids started coming along. So he'll have them hooked on it here before too long. But I always, when it rained, I thought, man, I'm going to have to mow that yard. And it used to make me so mad. I, anywhere you go, you hear old people say, boy, my garden needed it. I mean, all the time. It didn't matter what happened. If somebody was walking through the door and said, boy, my garden needed it, and you looked at the person after them and said, what do you think of this rain? They'd say, boy, my garden needed it. And it's just driving me crazy until I started raising a garden. Now, every chance I get, somebody complains about the rain, I say, whew, boy, my garden needed it. You know, it's a little different when you're on the other side of it. We associate rain with things that are dreary and discouraging, and we don't like the rain. We want it to go away. But for a farmer, the rain means life, means blessing, means growth, it means fruit. And I think what he's speaking about here as it relates to our life is this. If we want the blessing of God, then we need to follow this Bible. Let me tell you something. There are some major doctrines that we have let uh, snake oil salesmen take away from us, Right? I, just like a moment ago, when I started talking about living in victory, it made some of y'all nervous. All right, you was afraid I was going to come out in a white suit and, you know, start selling handkerchiefs or something. But let me tell you something. That's biblical to live in victory. It's biblical. We need to define it biblically. Somebody say amen to that. But it's a biblical truth. He's not called us to defeat, but to victory. And let me tell you something. This thing about the blessing of God is the same way. We, we started, we want to put all these parameters on God's blessedness. And I understand, don't get me wrong, I understand there, there are many different ways God blesses folks. I understand that God doesn't bless all the time in a monetary way or in a physical way. I'm aware of all that. But listen, you go ahead and nitpick to pieces what you want God to do. I just want God's blessing and favor on my life. And I'll be fine with however God wants to bless me and favor me. But if I want that to happen, I've got to follow the truth of the Word of God. You know what Moses also went on to say at the end of this chapter? He said, I lay before you a blessing and a curse. Choose you this day. Choose what you want to do. If we want the blessing, we've got to follow the truth of the Word of God. Let me give you one final thing, and I'm done tonight. I believe the real estate's at stake, and I believe the rain's at stake. Look at verse number 16. The Bible says, Take heed to yourselves that you..." 
your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord God, which the Lord giveth you. I think the wrath of God is at stake. Preacher, God wouldn't pour out wrath on me. We're not appointed unto wrath. The wrath of God doesn't abide on us. Listen, I understand that. We can talk theology all you want, but here's the stark reality. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If, if we don't want the chastisement of God, then we need to follow the truth of the Word of God. Now, I understand a lot of people want to, want to theologize that to pieces and, and give all kinds of reasons, but it's still in your Bible. If you go out of the will of God, then that's going to mean God is going to deal with you to get your attention. If we don't want God to have to do that, then we need to obey the truth of the Word of God. I agree there's a lot better motives than fear, but if nothing else will do, fear will do. And we need to understand, listen, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Now, I understand that relates to salvation, but I believe that's true of every promise of God, Brother Charlie, don't you? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. That's true that He's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I believe that's true of every promise of God. I believe it's equally true of uh, Hebrews chapter number 12, that every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. The Lord's not slack about that promise either. We step out of the will of God. God will let us know about it. Listen, a lost man, he can live any way that he wants. But a saved man steps out of the will of God, and God's going to let him know about it. God's going to let him know about it. There's a lot of reasons we follow the Bible, but I think these are a few because of what we've seen and because of what we're striving for and because of what's at stake. Now let's recommit ourselves to what we're summoned to, that we would love the Lord, that we'd make Him the passion of our life, the purpose of our life, the principles of our life. On and on we could go. Let's fall in love with our Bibles again. Amen. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.